0: Joshua chapter 19, we're going to read chapters 19 and 20. Chapter 19 is the conclusion of the distribution of the land amongst the twelve tribes. And then chapter 20 is the setting aside of the six cities of refuge. Joshua chapter 19 verse 1. And the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And they had in their inheritance Beersheba, or Sheba, and Moladah, and Hazor-Shuel and Bela, and Azim, and Eltolad, and Bethuel, and Hormah, and Zigleg, and Beth-Markaboth, and Hazar-Susa, and Beth-Lebioth, and Sheruhan, thirteen cities and their villages. Aen, Remen, and Ether, and Asian, four cities and their villages. And all the villages that were round about these cities to Balaith, Beer, Ramoth of the south. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Simeon according to their families. Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon, for the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of them. And the third lot came up for the children of Zebulun, according to their families. And the border of their inheritance was unto Sered. And their border went up toward the sea, and Merilah, and reacheth to Debesheth, and reached to the river that is before Jotnium. And turned from Sered eastward toward the sun rising, unto the border of Chishloth-Tabor, and then goeth out to Deboroth, and goeth up to Japhia. And from thence passeth on along on the east to Gideheper, to Itta Kazan and goeth out to Remnant Methuar to Nia, And the border compasseth it on the north side of Hanathon and the outgoings thereof are in the valley of Jiphthael. And Cathath, and Nahala and Shimron and Idalah and Bethlehem, twelve cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the children of Zebulun according to their families, these cities with their villages. And the fourth lot came out to Issachar for the children of Issachar according to their families, and their border was toward Jezreel, and Cheshuloth, and Shunem, and Hepharaim, and Shiron, and Anaharath, and Rabeth, and Kishion, and Abez, and Remeth, and Enganim, and Enhaden, and beth And the coast reacheth to Tabor, and Shahazamah, and Beth-Shemesh, and the go- outgoings of their borders were at Jordan, sixteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Issachar according to their families, the cities and their villages. And the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher according to their families, and their border was Helkath and Haley and Beton and Akshaf, and Alamalech and Ahmad and Mishiel, and reacheth to Carmel westward into Shihor Libneth, and turneth toward the sunrising to Beth Dagon, and reacheth to Zebulon, and to the valley of Jiphael, toward the north side of Bethamech. And the Isle, and goeth out to Kabul on the left hand. And Hebron, and Rehob, and Haman, and Canaan, even to the great Zidon. And then the coast turneth to Ramah, and to the strong city Tyre. And the coast turneth to Hosa, And the outgoings thereof are at the sea, from the coast to Akzib. Ummah also, and Aphek, and Rehob, twenty and two cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. The sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali, even toward the children of Naphtali, according to their families. And their coast was from Heloth, from Elan to Zanahan, and Adami, and Nekub and Jabnil, and to Lakem, and the outgoings thereof were at Jordan. And then the coast turneth westward to Asnath Tabor, and goeth out from thence to Hukok, and reacheth to Zebulun on the south side, and reacheth to Asher on the west side, and to Judah upon Jordan toward the sun rising. And the fenced cities are Zit. Zidim, Zir, and Hamath, Rakath, and Chinnereth, and the Dama, and Ramah, and Hazer, and Kadesh, and Adriai, and, and Hazer, and Iron, and Migdale and Horam and Bethanath, and Bethshemesh, 19 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. And the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families. And the coast of their inheritance was Zorah, and Eshtael, and Ershemesh, and Shalayabim, and Ajalon, and Jesla, and Elon, and Timnathah, and Ekron, and Eltika, and Gibbethon, and Balath, and Jehud, and Benabarak, and Gethrimon, and Majarkin, and Rakan, with the borders before Japho. And the coast of the children of Dan went out too little for them. Therefore the children of Dan went up to fight against Lisham, and took it, and smote it with the edge of the sword, and possessed it, and dwelt therein, and called Lisham Dan, after the name of Dan their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. When they had made an end of dividing the land for inheritance by their coasts, the children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua, the son of Nun, among them. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked, even timnath Sarah and Mount Ephraim, and he d- built the city and dwelt therein. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided for an inheritance by Lot and Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they made an end of dividing the country. The Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood." And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house unto the city from whence he fled. And they appointed Kadesh in Galilee and Mount Naphtali and Shechem in Mount Ephraim and Kirjith Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountain of Judah. And on the other side, Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness upon the plain out of the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth and Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan out of the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel, and for the stranger that sojourneth among them, that whosoever killeth any person that unawares might flee thither, and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, until he stood before the congregation. Let's pray. Lord, it's always a privilege to come and study Your Word, and as always, we seek Your your wisdom, we seek your, your spirit's guidance, and so we just pray that you would uh, make this study profitable, that you would reveal to us the, the true meaning of these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 19 is the distribution of the remaining six lots for the the remainder of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the first one we have here in chapter 19 is the land of Simeon. Notice in verse 1, the last part of the verse says, and their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And notice verse number 9, which closes the description of the land of Simeon. Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. For the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Um, We have read a lot in the book of Joshua about the lots that have been assigned to the various tribes remaining not totally conquered because of the either laziness or fear of those that are seeking to occupy the land. That's not what's going on here. Um, When it says that the that the land that had been given to Judah was too much for them, it's not referring to to the fact that Judah is unable to conquer it. That they are not, you know, being diligent in in the task that they have to to drive out the Canaanites. What's actually going on is there is a realization that they were just given too much. They didn't have the benefit that we do of aerial photos and uh, sophisticated surveys. And you recall earlier in chapter 14, Judah was the first tribe to have been given land on the, on the west side of the Jordan River. And of course, if you look at the maps in your Bible, you will see that they were given the largest portion of land, especially if, if you take into consideration the land that they are relinquishing to the tribe of Simeon at this point. So Joshua is in effect saying, you know, we, we were too generous. We gave them too much land and now there are still many tribes remaining that need land and so they're going to take some of it back. Again, they didn't know precisely how much land there was. You know, the, we, we just got done reading last week about an additional mission that he sent 21 men on to Do a more thorough analysis of the remaining parts of the of the promised land. So they're still in the in the process of gathering the the final layout of the land. Now, what's interesting here? We we have here in these first nine verses the a a term that we are very uncomfortable with today: the redistribution of wealth. Uh, That's what Josh was doing. He is taking something from one and giving it to another. Taking something that he had given and taking it back. There's no indication at all that a temper tantrum is thrown by Judah like a two-year-old would. If you gave a two-year-old something and then said, I made a mistake, I need to take it back. And I need to give that to someone else or split it in half or something. You We understand that, but... These are adults. They they should act like adults. And all indications are that they do. The spirit of cooperation here is, is very noteworthy. Um, we look around our country. We, we don't see a lot of that spirit. Um, for our government to suggest that they made a mistake in... Giving too generous of benefits, and then deciding that they need to scale those back, causes everyone to fly into an outrage. Um, How dare you suggest I can't retire when I'm 45, or that you're going to reduce my benefits? There's no there's no cooperation today, or very little cooperation today, like we see here again there's no there's no temper tantrum thrown by the tribe of judah for this um, when we were in peru this past november in 2012 the language barrier was evident uh <laughs> pastor's laughing we we took a tile saw to peru and we attempted to give it to our intention was to give it to all those that work on the various building projects in Peru. And I don't remember who did it. Somebody was trying to explain to Epifanio that we were giving them the saw. And somehow we found out that the next day from Tim that Epifanio was absolutely convinced that we gave it to him. Personally to him. That it wasn't given to the seminary to be used by anyone who had a ceramic tile project to work on. And we said to Tim, can't you just tell Epifanio, you know, that he misunderstood? And Tim said, you don't understand. In Peru, it just kind of really doesn't work that way. You can't really take something back once you've given it. And so, you know, I don't really know what became of that, but that was just kind of the way it was left. Frequently, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to numerous of you. Um, you go to the store and you buy something and you're either given too much in change or you're undercharged. And when you bring that to the attention of the cashier, they just look at you like you're from another planet, you know, because the, the, you know, the the error was in your favor. I mean, that happens to me quite a bit. I was at Menards not that long ago and I bought three of something that were supposed to be, they were $50 each. So I knew that my bill should have been over $150. And as I was leaving the store, you know, it occurred to me I only paid a little over a $100. So I went back and I explained to them that I, I realized I looked at my receipt and there whatever, whatever it was that I had three of, they'd only charged me for two. And the guy just looked at me like I was from some other planet. You know, like, well, what in the world? You know, why are you so honest? Um, you know, and that, but, you know, those things happen. We have to be willing to give back and relinquish on occasion that which we were given. And I, I recall the the stories that my grandparents would tell when they were growing up during World War II, having to live without and having to ration things. And they never, ever tell those stories in such a way as to portray that they were miserable or bitter or upset or angry about that in any way. They looked at it as an honor. That was their way of contributing to the, to the war. And it, it is a, you know, that's 70 years ago now. And in my estimation, that just doesn't reflect at all our country anymore. We, you just don't see that. You know, again, there's a, a big lack of, of this type of spirit of cooperation in our, in our country today. But this is what happens. They redistribute some of Judah's land to Simeon. And, you know, they, they are, of course, close brothers. Um, and if you read under the book of Judges, you know, they, they form a pretty tight alliance. I mean, they're, they're basically inseparable. They protect one another. So the whole thing works out very well. Verses 10 through 16 are the land given to the children of Zebulun. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time Talking about each one of these tribes in the first 48 verses. Um, if you are familiar with your Bible, you know that in both the Old and the New Testament, significant things happen in every one of these tribes in the land that's assigned to every one of these tribes. You can you can you can find various stories. Of course, Jesus was from Nazareth, you know, up here near the Sea of Galilee, and you know. There's the story of Elijah and the Shunammite woman. And, and, you know, we don't need to go into and highlight everything that took place. But all of the land was significant. All of it was was, you know, figured prominently in the history after this in the history of the nation of Israel. Down in verses, we'll jump down to the tribe of Dan, verses forty through forty eight. Verse number forty-seven says, "In the coast of the children of Dan went out too little for them." That that pulp falls pretty short of really portraying the the message that that's intended. You know, what does that mean? Went out too little for them. It doesn't mean that the land um, it was too small. Um, really, what it means is that you know it. Slipped away from them. Uh, they let it get away. They were not diligent, just like some of the other tribes that we read about in, in the previous chapters of driving out the Canaanites. They let fear get in the way. And that's the reason that they migrate north and capture some land that is referred to there in verse 47 as Elisham and take it. it's not that the land that they had had been given wasn't sufficient. Judges 18:10 says of Lechem, a large land, a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. Um, there are other scriptures in the Old Testament that essentially describe the entire Promised Land that way. The entire land was rich. It was fertile. It was it was a beautiful land and you know, I, I wasn't really sure how to, where to go with this. A lot of commentators make a lot out of the order in which this land was distributed. And it does seem uh, beyond coincidence that the order seems to favor those that were the preferred children of the 12 tribes of israel and you know doesn't seem a coincidence that the last three are here assigned to the the children of the the handmaids uh, if you want to you know refer to the the two handmaids of leah and rachel as the third and fourth wives of jacob um you know a lot is made of the order of of the way in which this land had been distributed and like i said it some of the arguments, you know, they're not without merit. I mean, it is hard to argue that there, you know, that you don't see a pattern here. Um, but again, I guess I would come back to: we are told that the entire land was, was rich, it was valuable, it was fertile. So I don't know that we can make too much out of saying that some of these tribes were slighted in their, you know, in what they were given. One of the arguments, one of many, is that the the tribes of, of the handmaids, these here being referred to at the last, were given the, the land on the outskirts, on the fringes. The argument being there that when an enemy would come and, in, and invade Israel, they would be the first ones that would, would face the enemy. In other words, the ones who were at the you know the inner central part of the nation such as Judah and and Joseph and Benjamin you know they would have been well protected maybe there's maybe there is an argument there you know the the argument has been and and probably continues to be that we we enjoy a, a little bit of a privilege still even living here in the central part of the United States and that you know if if our nation is to be attacked they're likely going to attack the east and the west coast before they're going to come to the center part of the nation. So that's part of the argument. Again, I don't really know how much to make of all that. I I mention it. Um, I I, I think it's really dangerous to read too much into the order. Um, You know, as I look at the overall spirit of what has been going on throughout the book of Joshua, I just don't think with God there are any second-class citizens. Um, There are no... You don't want you to become a child of God. You enjoy all of the the privileges of being a child of God. Um, you know, we use terminology today. We say you know someone comes from a broken home, and God can use people. God can and does use people from broken homes. Um, you know, just as much and, and as powerful as He uses other people. So, again, I mention all that. I, I don't really know how much to make of it. I I really don't make a lot out of it. Verses 49 through 51 are Joshua's inheritance. Um, in verse 49, it almost seems as though Joshua, you know, it's really the, the, the idea is really that of the the nation of Israel to give Joshua this land. I mean, it does say there in verse 50 that he asked for it. But in verse 49, that's preceded by the mentioning of the fact that Israel gave it to him. You know, you almost wonder if they kind of prodded him and said, hey, Joshua, what do you want? As a great leader, Joshua, you know, look at the way verse 49 starts. When they had made an end of dividing. I think this is reflective as we've seen consistently throughout the book of Joshua, his humility. Joshua didn't go in and demand his piece right up front. He didn't say, "I get a pick first, and you know we're going to make sure that I get what I want before anybody else gets what they want." That wasn't what happened. All twelve tribes have received their distribution before Joshua gets his. So I, I you know, I think that's again an indication of the kind of leadership that he provided. Verse number fifty-one, we see the hierarchy of leadership in this chapter, and it's it's illustrated consistently throughout the book we see down in the in the middle of the verse they did this in Shiloh before the lord of course the lord was at the top of that hierarchy and then we have Joshua and then at the beginning of the verse we have Eleazar the priest and then we also have mentioned the heads of the fathers and the tribes of Israel so The established hierarchy is is again followed consistently throughout the book. It I, I mention that because Joshua was in a position where he could have thrown his weight around, um, as many leaders do. And he didn't do that. We see consistently throughout the book that we, we find this phrase over and over again, that things were done according to the Lord. And Joshua was very insistent upon seeing that that was done. He he just didn't take advantage of his position. And not only he submitted to the authority of the Lord, but then he also heeded the advice of those that were below him. You see here the, the reference to the heads of the fathers of the tribes of Israel. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous to have a dictator that answers to nobody. We all know that. We all fear that. People have grown up in countries where that has been the case. And then lastly, in in terms of this section, chapters 14 through 19, which is the distribution of the land, it's it's worth noting that it, it begins and ends with land being given in chapter 14 to Caleb and land being given in chapter 19 here at the end to Joshua. And even though God is faithful to keep His promises to... All of those that you know, all of the the Israelites, all twelve tribes of Israel, it, it's shouldn't really go unnoticed that it, you know Caleb and Joshua are the ones who are commended for their exemplary faith. They were the ones who brought back the you know the the glowing report of the Promised Land and immediately wanted to go in and possess it. And so, even though God was faithful and gave land to all. Caleb and Joshua really receive a special blessing because of their faithfulness. I think that kind of forms the bookends of that section, chapters 14 through 19. And and again, I don't think that's by accident. God reserves special blessings for those that are faithful. Chapter 20, we move on into the the assignment of the six cities of refuge. And this is really kind of a, a repeat of... Something that has already taken place several times throughout the Bible, even leading up to this point. Again, most of the events of the book of Joshua are restating things that Moses had already clearly explained to the Israelites that they were supposed to do once they got there. So turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. We read chapter 20 in in Joshua, but Deuteronomy chapter 19 actually goes into a little bit more detail about the seas of refuge. It, It just elaborates on it a little bit further. Deuteronomy chapter 19, of course the command is to have three cities on the west side of the Jordan River set aside for cities of refuge. Moses has already set aside three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River. You remember before this seven year campaign ever started, the two and a half tribes were given land on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses was reluctant to grant that request in Numbers chapter 32, but in Numbers chapter 35, Moses then assigns three cities of refuge on that land, knowing that, uh, you know, that's God's plan, that however much land they have, there is to be an adequate number of cities of refuge assigned. Deuteronomy 19.1, When the Lord thy God hath cut off thy na- the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their cities and in their houses... Thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Again, these, these three cities are, are, uh, the second set of three cities to be assigned. You know, the, the, the cities east of the Jordan have already been assigned. This is, these are the instructions for the, the promised land proper, if we can use that word. Verse number three, thou shalt prepare thee a way and divide the coast of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit into three parts, and that every slayer may flee thither. The, the idea there is that there to make roads. These cities are to be very easily accessible. People are supposed to be able to flee to these cities very quickly. The the whole idea is to escape an angry mob, you know, to escape being lynched before there's an adequate time for a trial. Look at verse number six. Lest the avenger of blood pursue the slayer whilst his heart is hot. You know, in other words, in the heat of the moment and overtake him. In other words, these cities were to be very easily accessible so that the person who was seeking the life of the one who had accidentally killed someone couldn't just overtake them easily. These cities were, they, you know, somebody was to be able to escape into these cities very quickly to avoid being killed. In the heat of the moment. Verse number four, and this is the case of the slayer. And and again, the slayer here is referred to the one we we would use the term today, manslaughter. Someone who's killed someone accidentally, unintentionally, unawares, unwittingly, ignorantly. All these words are used throughout these, these books in the first six books of the Bible. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither and he, that he may live, whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly whom he hated not in time past. This is not premeditated. Verse 5, and here, here an example is given, and there's these there's other examples provided in the book of Numbers. When a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slippeth from the helm, or the handle, and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die. He shall flee into one of these cities and live. One of these cities of refuge. This is an. This is an accident. Now, notice that the Bible says that the the one who has committed the the. Uh, the act of manslaughter. Look in verse number six. There, towards the end, he's not worthy of death. He has taken a life, but the life that he had taken was unintentional, and so as long as that is, uh, if, as long as the conclusion of the matter is that it was unintentional, there is a price to pay, but the price is not death. In verse number seven, we see again: they, Thou shalt separate three cities. And then in verses number eight and nine, we see that, um, we, we see the reference to enlarging their coast. Um, really the idea there in verses eight and nine is, is God is saying, however far the borders of the land stretch, you're to make sure that there is an adequate number of cities of refuge available. So in other words, even if their borders later on would have extended even further than they, than they did at this time, God is, is letting them know, However large their land becomes, they need to make sure that cities of refuge are set aside adequately so that people can get to them very quickly to escape being killed by someone you know in the heat of the moment. Someone who's angry about something that has happened. Verse number 10 here in Deuteronomy 19 it says that innocent blood be not shed in thy land. In other words, if you're gonna, if you're gonna act in the heat of the moment and try to seek revenge against someone who has killed accidentally, you're gonna end up yourself being guilty of kill, killing someone because you've jumped to a conclusion that somehow it wasn't an accident, that somehow it was done intentionally. And that's what God's trying to prevent. He's trying to prevent that person from having innocent blood, that, from being guilty of taking innocent blood. Verse verse number 11, but if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Thine eyes shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with thee. Every one of these sections in the Bible that talks about the cities of refuge make it perfectly clear that these cities were not to protect those guilty of murder. Those guilty of murder would be killed. They were to be executed. This is for those who have killed unintentionally. Uh, Matthew Henry makes the observation that Shortly before his time, you remember he lived in the latter part of the 17th century, that during the Reformation, the Catholic Church had, was, was, you know, there was a lot of corruption and they had been protecting those that were guilty of murder. And so this had, you know, even, you know, a lot more meaning to someone who was living during the time of or, or at least it had a lot of meaning to Matthew Henry because he was, you know, in a sense seeing the the results of this type of corruption. And again, these verses are very clear. Um, you know, when they when when a person was to flee to a city of refuge, uh, diligent inquisition was to be made, and if they were found guilty of murder, if 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 whatever they had done was not accidental, was not unintentional, they were to be treated just like a murderer. They were to be executed. They were to be turned back over to that community. Now the theme here in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and in Joshua chapter 20 is that human life is sacred. Uh, not just the life of the of of the the person who uh had committed manslaughter but we don't want to forget about the person that had actually been killed. The, the person who, whose life had been taken unintentionally. That person's life is also very valuable. The thing that is clear here is that because, you know, as we read these verses and we read these accounts of the, the, the whole purpose for these cities of refuge, we might think, well, that, that's extremely harsh. If somebody has killed unintentionally, why should they be sent to a city of refuge? Why should they have to spend what could amount to the rest of their life separated from their family? And yet, that's the penalty. God, you know, human life is extremely sacred to God. Uh, We were created in His image. Uh, This provided great incentives for people to avoid careless accidents. When we think about a lot of the accidents that have taken place, it's usually not real difficult to think of how they could have been prevented or the risks minimized. Uh, This type of punishment was to prevent someone from simply saying, oh, well, it was an accident, as if It was no big deal that someone's life had been taken. Precautions are to be taken uh, to avoid careless accidents and willful negligence. I remember when I was growing up, we had a wood-burning stove, and my dad used an axe a lot, and he went through a lot of axes. And when the axe head would begin to slip off the handle, my dad would either put a wedge, another wedge in the end of the handle to... Make the handle fit into the axe head more securely, or he would get a new handle. Um, You know, my dad still replaces the handle on a lot of things nowadays—a shovel or whatever. I go down to Menards and buy a new one for three dollars and ninety-seven cents because it just doesn't seem like it's worth. But that's you know that's the generation that he that he's from. But you know, there was there was reasonable precautions taking. When he began to notice that the head was slipping off of the ax handle, then you know he would take some he would take some measures. You know, and and it's not beyond you know it's it's really not unreasonable to think through some scenarios where you know this privilege could have been greatly abused had had there not been this penalty for taking human life. I mean, somebody could have just had the attitude. Well, you know, the, the axe head is slipping off the handle, but you know, no big deal. I'm just going to continue to use it until, you know, it flies off and, you know, and, and something bad happens. Uh, you know, people, God did these things to provide people great incentives to, to act reasonably and to take adequate precautions. You know, as much as we hate to say it, we, we, you, we talk about OSHA today, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, with disdain. We find many of their rules unreasonable. We find them detestable. We have sprinklers in a building that that hardly has anything flammable. We have a hood over a stove that we hardly ever use, and you know we could go on and on about uh, uh, some of the you know what seems to be unreasonableness of some of the the building codes that are implemented. I know when I was building my shed four years ago, it was uh, I had to have five inspections. I called the county and because it was bigger than 12 by 10, just a little bit bigger than 12 by 10, I had to have, uh, you know, a full blown permit and five different inspections. And I remember going, I went down to the courthouse and I met with the chief building inspector, inspector, and I said, he says, you got to have footing 16 inches wide and 42 inches deep. I said, it's a shed. And I, you know, argued where I discussed with him for about 20 minutes. And he he didn't want to relent. I said, you know, this is a 12 by 16 shed that's primarily for chickens. That's going to be 14 yards of concrete for the footings. Just like a house. Finally, you know, after 20 or 30 minutes, he finally relented. And he said, well... I'll let you have the footings only be 12 inches deep if you run two strands of rebar all the way around. Okay, I'll do that. So there's only three yards of concrete for a shed that I'm I'm using, you know, just for the footings. When we got the shed all done, my dad said, you've built a bomb shelter for chickens. (laughs) Which is really what happened. So I'm very familiar with the unreasonableness of, of building inspectors. But normally there are... Uh, you know, there's good intentions behind a lot of these rules and regulations that we detest. I was watching a documentary on television about the construction of the Hoover Dam in which well over 100 people died during the construction, about 150 people. And one of the old timers that they were interviewing was was um, recalling how that they were there at working one day and a guy fell off a cliff and hit the ground and he was killed instantly. And and they had stopped and, and began to look at him. And the foreman came over and said, "What are you guys looking at? Get back to work." And that was that was the mentality of of construction, you know, at that time. And every life is sacred to God. You know, as I was driving down to to Greenville this past week, I I noticed one of the cars in front of me that had a bumper sticker that said, "Every life counts. Please drive safely." That's the sentiment of chapters Deuteronomy 19 and Joshua chapter 20. That's, that's God's point. Every life counts. Every life is important. So, you know, we, my dad was a trucker for, for over 40 years and, and he had an accident one time. It, it wasn't his fault. But, um, all of the stuff associated with that, you know, they want your maintenance log to see if your brakes were faulty. They want your driving log to see how many hours you had driven, whether or not you had had adequate sleep. They want you to take a blood test to see whether or not you were impaired. They want to subpoena your cell phone records to see whether or not you were texting and driving. I mean, and the list just goes on and on and on. But that's a whole lot easier than having to be sent to a city of refuge and live until the death of the high priest, which could have been anywhere from one day to 50 years or more but you know why 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 do we do all these things because human life is sacred i mean you know when before we left on the the trip clay and tony looked at the bus and decided that it needed a new set of tires good glad to have them the the bus the bus ran great you know we've got to take adequate adequate precautions and do what is necessary to minimize the risk of losing a human life you know we you know there was just not too long ago a, a lot of complaints uh, over in Iowa about the the mandate for you know having to take hunter safety courses but you know look what happened with Dick Cheney I mean I mean you know, I'm just I'm being I'm being honest turn back to to turn, turn back to numbers chapter 35 I'll just look at a verse here real quick. Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 28 are, are, law, are laws concerning murder. But again, they touch on the fact that it's not always intentional. Notice verse number 20. The preceding verses are talking about if it was intentional, if it was premeditated. But then in verse 20 it says, But if he thrust him of hatred or hurled at him by laying of weight that he die, or in enmity smite him with his hand that he die, he that smote him shall surely be put to death, for he is a murderer. The revenger of blood shall slay the murderer when he meeteth him. That's intentional. But look at verse 22. But if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or have cast upon him anything without laying of weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die seeing him not, well, that, that's that's Dick Cheney's situation right there. He didn't see the guy. He just pulled the trigger and fired the gun and shot the guy. It's a hunting accident. He didn't see him. It was unintentional. But God still—and fortunately, that man didn't die. But God still values human life. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-two. We, we have a tendency to get upset with some of the building codes. I know I do, but look at, God instituted the first building code. Deuteronomy 22, 8, when thou buildest a new house, when thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house if any man fall from thence. God says you're responsible if somebody falls and you didn't put a railing around the, the porch that you build, the high, the high porch. A lot of times it was common in those days to have a rooftop porch. God said, if somebody falls, you're to blame. You're culpable. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, well, as long as you warn them to be careful, then, you know, you escape the consequences. It doesn't say that at all. So, you know, God is very much concerned about human safety and God is very much concerned about human life. Now, turn back to Joshua. We're just about out of time. Joshua chapter 20. Now again, in, we, we've kind of looked at some of this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, but in, in verses 5 through 6, God is making it clear to the leaders, the, the, the elders in the cities of refuge, that they must protect those people that have fled to them for refuge. They must not let them be lynched by an angry mob. They are entitled to a fair and public trial. Notice there in verse six, he says, and he shall stand, and he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment. And notice verse number nine, how it ends, until he stood before the congregation. Somebody was entitled to a fair trial. They, 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 they couldn't just lynch somebody. They couldn't just treat somebody. They can say, well, you know, he's an immigrant, so immigrant, so we, you know, all of the, the prejudice and bias are thrown out the window. Look what God says there. Verse number nine, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourned among them. That Whosoever, not just Israelites, that whosoever killeth any person that unawares might flee thither and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood. So God says, everybody gets the same protection. Everybody's entitled to a public trial. Everybody's entitled to a trial. They can't just... You know, turn somebody over to an angry mob for lynching. God takes great care to make sure that, that all life is protected. Not only those that have accidentally killed, but also those, those that have been accidentally killed. But that, that, that same pity and that same mercy didn't apply to the murderer. Now in terms here of the death of the high priest, some have questioned, you know, well, what's the significance there? and most agree there is that that's a that's a foreshadowing of the death of Christ that Christ's death on the cross his shed blood for us is paying the penalty for our sin and so it's not only until it's it's not until the death of the high high priest that the blood of the one that had been accidentally slain has been atoned for and so it's at that time that that someone could then return to their family and again you know it would be You know, it would be very unfortunate. I mean, if if you happen to accidentally kill somebody, you know, the day after a new high priest was instituted, I mean, that could be a long time. You you would kind of hope it's towards the end of their life. Uh, Pastor, you want to answer that one? (laughs) Uh, You know, I... I I actually, I've asked, I've asked myself that question a lot of times, and um, I mean, you know, this nonsense going on in our legal system with Nico Jenkins is the biggest joke in the whole world. Everybody knows it. What difference does it make whether Nico Jenkins was in his right mind or not? I mean, tell me if I'm out of line, Pastor, but he took four lives. This this is this is a circus. It's it's ridiculous. It's a joke. He should be executed. He should have already been executed. It's just making a... right. Right. Yeah, he's just making right. Yeah, he's just making a mockery out of the whole legal system, which isn't hard to do. Anyway, we're we're going to stop there. It's ten till, so you're dismissed.